Sarah. Hi, Allison. So the decision by the United States Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade and essentially end abortion rights for women in the United States, it's made waves also here in France. Yep. The new Speaker of France's National Assembly, Yael Brown-Pivet, the first woman to ever hold the post, used her first day in office on Tuesday this week to vigorously defend the right to abortion here in France. She called the U.S. Supreme Court decision brutal. It shocked us so much, it's a stark reminder to be vigilant, she said. Yeah, and now French lawmakers from center and the left are pushing to get abortion rights enshrined in the French Constitution. Why is this necessary, you may ask? The right to end an unwanted pregnancy was legalized here in 1975 under the then health minister Simone Veil. It's known as the Veil Law. At the time, abortion was legal, therefore, until the 10th week of pregnancy. Yeah, earlier this year, that was extended up to 14 weeks because data showed there were delays in getting access. But there have been reports from time to time that some women are having trouble with doctors refusing to do the procedure. And there are concerns here, perhaps that there could one day be a government in power which is less supportive of abortion rights. The proposal to protect it in the Constitution has received quite a bit of cross-party support, although it's put the far-right national rally in a bit of a spot. Yeah, the recent legislative elections actually sent a record 89 MPs into the Assembly, so their opinion counts. Mm. The leader, Marine Le Pen, has always been quite vague on the issue, though many in her party are openly anti-abortion. So were some on the conservative wing of the mainstream right, Républicains, who also have a very Catholic bent. But what does it take for France to actually change its constitution? Well, it certainly is possible. France has had 15 different constitutions since the mm. revolution in 1789. And the latest one from 1958 has been revised more than 20 times. So in principle, no problem. The process, however, does involve a lot of work. President has to approve, so does both Houses of Parliament. And the final text has to be approved by three-fifths of those two chambers. Right. But if they do manage to get this passed, um, you know, obviously there's no guarantee that enshrining abortion rights in the Constitution would never be revoked. It would appear to offer more security than the 1975 law, which could be amended by a future government if it has enough of a majority. So the big news in France this week is the end of the Paris attacks trial. This is the trial of 20 men involved in the attacks in 2015 that left 130 people dead at the Bataclan Theater and other locations in Paris. Salah Abdeslam, the only surviving member of the commando that carried out the attacks, was sentenced to a whole life term, which is 30 years. Yeah, it's the fifth time only in French history that such a punishment has been handed out. Mm. It's actually a sentence that was introduced in France after the abolition of the death penalty in the 80s. That means he can't even start to ask for parole before the end of the 30 years. So that means Abdeslam will likely spend the rest of his life in jail. The judge, Jean-Louis Perriès, found 19 of the 20 defendants, including Abdeslam, guilty on all the terrorism-related charges. Michael Fitzpatrick has been following the trial since it started in September of last year. I talked to him about the experience and the verdict. Over the last 10 months, we've developed a sense of the accused as, as people that we know. Um, 
not exactly our friends, but because we've heard them speak, we've heard so many people speak about them, and most recently we've heard their defence lawyers make impassioned pleas on their behalf. So there was a sense that we began to believe some of what they were saying, which exonerated them from the worst aspects of the crimes of which they were accused. That's interesting because you went into it maybe with a very different perspective. Well, certainly. Uh, th these were terrorists. Uh, nobody liked them. And they, they sensed that. They've all spoken about how uh, when they initially came, they, they felt a great wall of dislike. The public were not friendly to them, understandably, given that the vast majority of the public were the families of uh, the bereaved. So we, we had a sense that they their stories began to develop weight over the 10 months, but the court did not judge uh, what these men said they did. The court judged what they actually did. Right. And but but that, that actually makes me wonder about this ruling then. You know, at the end of the day, if it really is just about what they did, what purpose then did this um, trial serve? We've spoken in, in previous podcasts about how... Uh, it was important for the families of uh, the victims, for the survivors to actually have an opportunity to testify, to put their experience on record. That's one aspect of it. And the prisoners have, have certainly themselves undergone a sort of a series of changes over the, la the last uh, 10 months. The, the most striking was Abdeslam himself, who in the beginning started out very defiant and towards the end was very repentant and, yeah. and actually acknowledged the victims, which, you know, yeah. was a big turn, a big shift Indeed. for him. And he explained that by drawing attention to the conditions under which he was imprisoned, because prior to his appearance in the court, he had spent five years virtually in solitary confinement, and he claims he was mistreated. Right. So when he got to court in the beginning, it was just this explosion of exactly. this is he, how he explains it. He felt, I've been mistreated by this society, so he announced himself as a soldier of Allah. That shifted, obviously, by the end of it. He, he But yeah. but, but so you were talking about these shifts and that kind of thing, that the fact that the judge and the judges didn't take... I guess, that sort of evolution into account. I oh, mean, is that surprising? No, I think they have taken it into account. But the, the fact remains that these people contributed to the worst atrocity committed in France in peacetime. Uh, so, yes, it's, it's, we, we should be thankful that they have evolved as human beings. But the facts remain. There were five of the most experienced, the most professional judges, led by uh, Jean-Louis Perriès, who is retiring after this trial. And they looked at the facts. Of course, they have seen the changes in these men. But at the end of the day, that doesn't alter the fact that 132 people have died as a result of their actions, and between four and 500 are seriously injured. But th there's this feeling of, like, all these people got the maximum sentences. They're involved in a horrible act of terrorism. It almost seems like it was going to happen this way. Like, you have this sense that, you know, the fact that the judges didn't decide to reduce sentences or shift things a bit is, does it sort of feed into this idea that maybe this was, you know, preordained political to some extent? No, absolutely not. I, I would defend the court against any charge of that nature. Because it looks bad if you let terrorists out and you don't put the maximum sentence on them. No, I must say, even the fact that last night the court told us that they would issue their decision sometime after 5.30. And in fact, they didn't make their announcement until 11 minutes past 8. 
I think that's significant because Jean-Louis Perriès would know that the evening news is at eight o'clock and everybody is watching television. But he wasn't remotely interested in television, the media or public opinion. Public opinion obviously is very strong. People are terribly moved even now by the fact of these terrible attacks. But that's not what was being judged. You, Michael, sat through pretty much every day that the court was in session over the last nine, ten months. Pretty um, much. Pretty much, right? And not all journalists have done that. You know, often they came in for the highlights when Abdus Salam was on the stand or, or mm. former President Hollande was mm. on the stand, all these kind of things. I mean, how does that give you a sense of both how the trial worked, but maybe sort of a broader sense of... I don't know if we can be lofty about how French justice works. Well, somebody said that if you want to understand uh, a society, you should look at how they administer justice, particularly criminal justice. And I think that's very, very true. I've learned a lot about France. Most of it is very much to the credit of France. A forum was provided in which absolute openness was the rule. Every day, uh, journalists and the public were welcomed to that courtroom. Everything was straightforward. And so that uh, absolute openness, uh, determination uh, to administer justice publicly, clearly, and according to the way the law is written down. And that's finally what has been done. Uh, as for sitting through it all, I have to say I'm really glad I did that. There were days when I did need to take a break, particularly during the testimony uh, by the survivors and the families of the bereaved. That was so emotionally difficult, and it went on for finally six weeks in total. I wasn't able to sit through all of that. Do you have a, a particularly memorable, like, is there something that, I mean, obviously, there's probably lots of things that stand out. But but if, you know, if you're going to sort of describe, you know, a memorable experience. In fact, there is, I think, one moment from the very early days when uh, when the trial started, we had some preliminary remarks uh, from the president of the court. And he then began reading what is called the, the president's report, the summary of the million pages of evidence, his shortened version of how he sees things at the very start. And this went on for almost a week. And they hadn't got the organization uh, for the prisoners particularly well fixed at that stage, and they hadn't planned for days which went on, in some cases, till after 11 o'clock at night. So the prisoners uh, were looking the worse for wear in their glass box. And at a late stage on one of those long days... People from the public benches came up, spoke to the policemen guarding the prisoners, and then with their agreement passed packets of biscuits and sandwiches and water through the glass security screen. And these members of the public are victims, families of victims, people they, who are not particularly liking yeah, these guys behind exactly. the glass. Exactly. Mm. These were the families mm. of the people that so these men mark, helped to mark kill. Of humanity there. But they showed their humanity. Mm. And that impressed me enormously, a gesture of humanity from people from whom uh, you couldn't necessarily expect it. At this point, they all have their verdicts, pretty much all what the prosecution asked, exactly. although not all of them. Um, they have 10 days to appeal. I mean, what are we going to see here? My guess is that for those who face the harshest penalties, there will, in fact, be appeals, if only from the psychological point of view, that, that will help these men come to terms with 
the fact of uh, a future of long-term incarceration. And in the prosecution's presentation, you could hear the basis on which some of those appeals might be made. Some of the prisoners, and those who are now going to serve 30-year sentences, were not in Paris at the time of the attacks. And so you could see how an appeal might be based around that. And that might work on a legal technicality, so it's certainly worth trying. I think there will be appeals. So going into France's colonial past and Haiti, on July 11, 1825, so 197 years ago next week, more than two decades after Haitian slaves revolted and declared the country independent from France, Haiti's president agreed to pay 150 million gold francs to France rather than going to war with its former colonial ruler. Hmm. So basically to compensate slave owners for losing their quote-unquote property after the revolution. Yeah, basically. The mm -hmm. irony, right? And it represented a huge amount of money. It was 10 times the annual budget. And it forced Haiti into taking out crushing loans from French banks, which took more than a century to pay off. For decades, the descendants of slaves had to pay their former slave masters with money that could have been used to develop their country, build schools, hospitals, even roads. Yeah, really important infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So that didn't happen. And today, Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the world. Yeah. For a long time, France obviously isn't very keen to shine a light on exactly how much Haiti paid or really to even talk about the issue at all. In May of this year, the New York Times published research done by journalists and archives in France and Haiti, which concluded that Haiti paid France 530 million euros in today's money. And it also estimated that because of the loans, which are sometimes called the double debt, right, there was the the debt, initial debt, and mm. then the interest and all the, the stuff they had to pay on the loans. Because of that, Haiti lost between 20 and 110 billion euros in lost economic growth over the decades. Incredible. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Having to pay for your freedom. Yeah. What, what a crazy story. Mm. And it's had some serious implications. Absolutely. Now, France colonized Haiti, Saint-Domingue, in the 17th century. It brought slaves from Africa, turned the colony into one of the wealthiest in the world. Yeah, it was called the Pearl of the Antilles and it became the world's main producer of coffee and sugar. Yeah. In the late 18th century, the slaves revolted, and Haiti declared itself independent in 1804. After more than a decade of fighting the Haitian Revolution, it became the first black republic in the world. But France refused to recognize the independence. Slave owners wanted compensation for what they said was lost property, land, and slaves. Haiti's president, Alexandre Pétion, and his successor, Jean-Pierre Boyer, offered to buy France's recognition. They offered 15 million francs, which was the price that France sold Louisiana to the United States for. Mm -hmm. Bon. Makes sense. <laughs> King Louis XVIII, who had helped overthrow Napoleon, and then his successor, Charles X, they rejected the offer over and over again. Until April 1825, Charles X changed his mind, and he issued a decree that France would recognize Haitian independence for... 150 million francs. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot more than 15 million. <laughs> a lot more. Yeah. And it put Haiti on the path to essentially economic servitude to France. 
The decree was brought to Haiti by Baron de Macau, who arrived in July of 1825, accompanied by an army and warships. And it was clear that rejecting the offer would mean war. So the president, Boyer, signed the document on July 11th, 1825. A revision to that ordinance in 1838, which is ironically called the Traité d'Amitié, the Friendship <laughs> Treaty, hmm, reduced the debt to 60 million francs. But Haiti still couldn't pay, so had to take out more loans. The money helped France enormously, actually. The New York Times showed that the CIC Bank used the money to finance the construction of the Eiffel Tower, among other projects. Boyer had to levy huge taxes to pay back the loans, and public projects in Haiti, like a school system, were put on hold, and the debt wasn't completely paid off until 1947. Researchers have found the debt and the impact on the economy was directly responsible for underfunding education in the 20th century, the lack of health care, and Haiti's inability to develop any kind of public infrastructure. This was all too obvious, wasn't it, uh, during the 2010 earthquake, which decimated the island. And really, it still hasn't recovered from that. No. In 2002, then Haitian President Jean-Bertrand Aristide filed legal claims demanding formal reparations. In 2010, after the earthquake, a group of intellectuals and politicians published an appeal to French President Nicolas Sarkozy for France to repay 17 billion euros of what they called independence debt. Sarkozy later visited Haiti. He pledged 270 million euros in earthquake reconstruction aid, which included canceling 56 million euros of Haiti's modern debt. I mean, a drop in the ocean, right? mm -hmm. if indeed the, the actual debt is in the billions. Yeah, yeah. In May 2015, then French President François Hollande visited Haiti. He admitted that France needed to, quote, settle the debt. Mm. But later, after it was pointed out that this could be used in the legal demand for reparations, he revised himself and he said he actually meant that France's debt was merely moral. Mm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the whole subject remains very, very sensitive mm -hmm. in France. Macron reportedly has refused to speak publicly about the issue. Sarah, those few little notes that become some of the best known in the world, can you identify them? Harry Potter, no? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that was so easy. <laughs> uh, that is indeed Hedwig's theme from the film version of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone based on the first of J.K. Rowling's novels about the young wizard and his adventures at Hogwarts School. Uh, a big part of the Potter universe is the game of Quidditch. Ah, Quidditch. Yeah, where these young wizards ride in the sky on broomsticks and compete to catch a snitch, a kind of shiny winged ball. In 2005, Quidditch came off the page and was turned into a real-life sport in the US. It's since spread and it's now played in some 40 countries, including here in France. Have you ever seen anyone playing it? No, I didn't even realize that people were playing it in real life. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> a few years ago, I spotted some people playing it in the woods. And like many people, well, I just, I thought it was a joke. Yeah, I mean, you kind of, yeah, would. well, you would, right? But I guess it isn't. No, far from it. There are proper national and international competitions huh. now. What do you know? Yeah, it's a sport. And the game really does draw on skills that you use in handball, rugby and dodgeball. Okay, so obviously, though, it has to be played on the ground. No one's flying around like in no. the books. No um, drones. No, right. Although maybe these days you could change it. But so how do they, how do they translate that sort of fictional magical version into a real game well just like in the books you are mounted on some kind of broom ah. but 
yeah, you stay on the ground. The broom has to stay between your legs. That's a rule. There aren't any capes. Those went away long ago. People okay. wear, they, they wear proper sporting equipment. You have two teams of seven people facing off. Each player has a specific role. You get to score points for getting a kind of soft volleyball known as a quaffle through one of three hoops, which are at each end of the pitch. The beaters, as they're called, try and knock people out temporarily by striking them with dodgeballs. Those are known as blood. And the game ends when the snitch, which is also a person identified with a tag on the back of their shorts, is caught by one of the players. Okay, so all these different balls, kind of a bit of tag, I mm. guess. I mean, it does sound like fun. Yeah, it is fun, but it's, as I said, it's sport and it's caught on. It's the only full contact sport which is mixed gender. Oh. At any point in the game, no more than four of the seven players in each team can be of the same gender. That's the rules. Yeah, that's the rules. Mm. But while it's hugely popular in the US, in Australia, in the UK, in Germany, the game is struggling to really take off here in France. Despite that, though, France won the European title in 2019. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. Huh. And, <laughs> and we'll be heading back to defend it in Ireland at the end of this month. I went along to watch the French team training in the Bois de Boulogne, east of Paris, to find out who they are, how they got into it, and what they think about playing with a broom between their legs. Ready? Brooms up, shouts the referee, kicking off this practice match. A dozen players are scuttling around a stretch of arid ground. Other members are waiting on the sidelines, shouting encouragement when a player gets a quaffle through one of the three hoops. Sarah throws her bludger at her opponent, hitting him on the back. Paul dodges between his opponents, does a lot of tackling, but the game stops and starts. It's a really physical sport because we have to run a lot. There are a lot of contacts. Uh, you need to realize skills like uh, passing, shooting, tackling. Paul Bonnet, the team captain, is an engineer with Airbus in Toulouse. The most interesting thing in Quidditch is really the fact that there are two games in one. When you see it at first, you think like this is a mess because there are a lot of things happening in, in the field at the same time. And that's something you have to get when you play Quidditch is to, to be able to, to look at all the field at the same time and knowing where each ball is and uh, which player has control of each ball. There's an additional challenge today. It's the hottest day so far this year in the Paris region, 39 degrees and not a spot of shade in sight. Bonjour. Bonjour Cédric. Cédric Chilon, the coach, comes off the field pouring with sweat. The 37-year-old is a former semi-professional handball player, but six years ago, when he could no longer reconcile the heavy training with his job, he moved over to Quidditch. Moi, ce que j'aime, c'est les contacts. What I like is the contact, and there's a lot of strategy involved because it's such a new sport. There's a lot to invent and to question, and I like the fact it's gender mixed. So you have men and women battling with the same intensity on the field. They tackle one another just like in rugby. It's very intense. Five years ago, the fun Harry Potter side was dominant, but now it's the sporting side. What we like to say is that you usually come for Harry Potter and you stay for the sport. That's Emmeline Bosk, a 25-year-old environmental engineer and the team's assistant coach. She got hooked into Quidditch through Harry Potter about a decade ago when she was 14. 
My sister and I were pretty much in this mood, in this fandom. So uh, Quidditch was just starting in Europe at that time. We had a couple of friends in Toulouse who were also fan of Harry Potter and we heard that there were Quidditch teams starting to build, which were starting uh, to play. And we decided just to create the team of Toulouse. Um, so that was in 2011. What do you most like about it, Emily? Do I have to say only one thing? <laughs> okay, I'll go for two. What I really really enjoy in Quidditch is the fact that no matter what gender you are you can come and play and actually now I'm starting to play some other sports just for myself and I have very hard time playing only female sports. The second thing is the fact that there are contacts. I myself come from Toulouse which is a region from rugby and I play rugby as well. And, and that's something I can find in, uh, in Quidditch. Yeah. And it gets rough, right? It's rough, yeah, sure. It's why it's so competitive and players who come for Quidditch uh, like it rough, I would say. <laughs> but the rough and tumble scrums you see in rugby are slightly tempered when you have to keep a broom between your legs at all times. I've been introduced to Quidditch by a friend in high school. Uh, he approached me, asking me to come uh, to Quidditch. I was like, you have a broom between your legs, it's, it's a bit ridiculous, but yeah, let's try it. In the early days, players used real brooms. Nowadays, they tend to be plastic canes, as Paul Bonnet shows me. These ones are really small, so it's uh, about one meter uh, length. And if you do not have uh, the broom in between your legs, like this, for example, you're out of the game. So you said it, it wasn't easy to get used to the idea of having you know, yeah. a, a stick between your legs. Do you think that's a barrier to getting people more interested in France in the game? It definitely is. Like I'm 100% sure about this. But the more I play it, the more I realize it's the same as dribbling in basketball. Yeah, basketball would be much easier if you did not have to dribble. And Quidditch could be much easier if you did not have to have the broom. But it's just one handicap and you have to, to accept it. Quidditch isn't yet recognised as an official sport in France. It doesn't benefit from sponsorship. Players pay their own transport costs to come to train in Paris, so it's quite an expensive hobby. There are only between two and 300 players in around a dozen teams across the country. Coach Cédric Chillon agrees that the broom is holding back some people, but it shouldn't. Some players, especially men, are reticent about having a broom between their legs. I can understand that. But once it's there, you forget about it. What I often say is the broom is just a handicap. In handball, the handicap is to take three steps. In rugby, it's throwing the ball behind you. And in Quidditch, it's having the broom. In countries like the UK, US and Australia, Quidditch's unique rules on mixed gender has brought it a lot of support from the LGBTQI community. But that's not something that France necessarily markets, says Paul Bonnet. There are some people that really flourish in the sport because they are finally accepted as what they are. But I do not think there is a, a big emphasis on, on this in France at the moment. I think in France we embrace the mixed gender. But when you're talking to someone to, to get them into Quidditch, for me, it's not the first thing you, you're going to say. Eight out of the 21 members of the French team are women, but Bonnet says it isn't always easy to recruit female players. Specifically in France, we have a, a bit of a problem because girls are not really 
doing sports when they're young. So it's difficult for them to adapt uh, in the game and, and to find their place. In France, we really have these cultural things that almost all the boys did sport when they were young, but the girls know. So that's something we, I hope the young generation is sending this because it does not help when you try to recruit. Sarah Belfaroon wasn't deterred. She started eight years ago in the Paris Frogs team, pulled in by her sister, a PE teacher. They're both now in the national team. I tried it out and just loved it. It's so very physical and very collective. We come together as a group of mates who enjoy the competition side and being together. I'm an accountant. We've got nurses, sports teachers, a gymnast. Theo's a video gamer. Audrey's in IT. There's a bit of everything. Not necessarily all sporty types. It's very diverse. For Quidditch to develop in France, Bonnet says they need to get official recognition as a federation. In the meantime, they're hoping to hang on to their title at the European Championships in Ireland at the end of July, even if, as Emmeline Bosk admits, the two-year break due to COVID has slowed the team down a bit. It's going to be a tough tournament. We saw that people did that rest those two years and the level is pretty high. An added handicap has gone into the mix, says Cédric Chillon. On a donc la Belgique, l'Angleterre, Belgium, UK and France are the favourites and there's a little surprise because Australia is taking part even if it isn't in Europe. As they don't have a competition, it was agreed that they could come and train with European teams. They're very strong. For me, they're second best in the world after the United States. So it's going to be tough, but that's the objective. Gold, definitely. And that's it for Spotlight on France. We're going to be taking a break for a few weeks this summer. Yeah, we'll have new episodes in September. In the meantime, though, maybe we'll pull together some of our favorite segments mm. for a couple of specials this summer. That would be nice. Do yeah. you have any favorites? <laughs> uh, I'm asking people listening here. Let us know. Send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Yeah, maybe even if you want updates on some things, let us know. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. Look for us on Instagram, Spotlight on France, and find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great summer. You too, Sarah. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.